tie these things together in this final sermon from this passage. Let me read the entirety of it, and then we will pray and consider God's word together. Here as I read God's word, Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees in the fields shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Let's pray. Lord, we are, again, so thankful for the privilege you've given us that we can come together this morning. And I do pray even for all of our, our dear ones and loved ones and fellow brothers and sisters throughout the world, many of them who are uh, isolated and uh, quarantined for various reasons and because of the unique pestilence that is taking place worldwide. But we thank you for the privilege you've afforded to us. We ask you now, God, as we consider today from this passage, we ask that you would be pleased to bless the preaching of your word. Lord, as we review some things that are, uh, uh, for some of us, um, foundational, but as we again glory in the clarity of your word, the surety of your purpose, and the su success that is secured by our Savior, we pray, O oh God, that you would bless us in the hearing of your word this day, that we would honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here we take up what will be, I'm quite sure, the last of our sermons in Isaiah 55. We remember this began with that call to those who are hungry and thirsty. 
and the passage was indicating something beyond the physical sense of hunger and thirst, that there was something deeper, that those things that feed our physical senses and our physical needs, they ultimately do not bring satisfaction, and they do not abide, and it pushes us to something deeper, something that we incline our ear towards, and in doing so, live. We see that the scripture not only called us to, uh, presented a call to the thirsty and hungry, but it also presented a call then to listen and learn. And in the midst of the call to listen, it presented that those unique words that spoke about David, who would be the sure and fed, steadfast love for David and how I made him a witness. And we noticed that David, by the time Isaiah is written, is done and buried. He's not the king, but still that promise given to David of a son who would sit on his throne and would build his house and establish his name forever was wonderfully and fully fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we see that this, this is building. And even those same words, the call to the thirsty, Jesus brought those things up at the end of the feast and said, all who are thirsty, come to me. And we see how so often the scripture finds itself finding its fulfillment, finding it full circle. Indeed, the promises of God all find their yea and amen in Jesus Christ. After unfolding those things, it then set forth a call to repent. It, to, in the Old Testament context, repent while he is near. Repent while you are able. And we looked at the fact that that reality still stands. It is appointed for man once to die and then judgment. Repentance is only available for, to us in this life. And we moved on and we saw the climactic considerations as it compared man's ways with God's ways, man's thoughts, with God's thoughts, and how they're, I say, compared that which is incomparable because they are so different. God does not think as you and I think. He does not act as you and I act. And a lot of our errors come from the assumptions that he should think like us and he should act like us. But thankfully, by the grace of God, though we don't naturally think in the way of God, in the intake of the scripture, in the renewing of our mind, we have the mind of Christ in us. That as we give up our thoughts and lay hold of His, and we give up by His grace our acts and, and walk according to His, great grace is manifest in our lives. And we see that when we unfolded that, even last week, we looked at how God is powerful in all of His purposes. And even the, how the scripture used, not merely as an example, but the rain and the snow and the way that it, it provides seeds and waters the earth, but that that itself is by the very hand of God. And we looked at how extraordinary and specific and mighty in terms of the breadth of scope of the upholding of the very cosmos by the word of his power, down to the, the seemingly insignificant of the number of hairs on our head and a sparrow falling from the sky, all is absolutely under his sovereign sway at all times. 
And what a comfort that is in a season of, of fear and tumult and uncertainty in this world. But the scripture goes beyond that, and with regard to all of those things, practically, physically, historically, nationally, all of those things are unfolding by his divine decrees under his eternal purposes perfectly. But people often get a little less comfortable when you move God's absolute power and sway into the spiritual realm. And when you say, with regard to our souls, we are absolutely dependent on the saving grace of our God. It is not within us to save ourselves. We have not the wisdom and understanding. We have not the good works and righteousness. We have not even within us the, the ability to repent and turn. We need the grace of God to powerfully work. And we're going to, again, go over what for us are wonderful, refreshing, and reminder passages this morning. Because I want us to see... You know, the simple reality this morning is as he sends forth the rain and the snow and it does not return void but accomplishes its purpose, we are told here in verse 11, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God himself, as we, we spoke, he never fails in accomplishing his purpose. Indeed, his word never fails to accomplish his purpose. And it's important for us to understand that, that, that our God is a sovereign God. He is a saving God who sends his word, and it always succeeds in what he seeks to accomplish. Indeed, when we read 1 John, it goes so far as to say to us, who by the grace of God have faith, that we are more than conquerors in him. And greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Again, if we are more than conquerors because of God at work within us. That means conquerors isn't quite a big enough word for the ultimate victory that is ours in Christ, which means if I want to speak of the absolute constant prevailing victories of God in all places and at all times, there isn't a big enough word for it. But he always does. And again, I think it's important for us to remember, it's not difficult for him. It's not a battle for him. We, in our minds, I think we still tend to think of the world in a dualistic manner. The yin and the yang, the darkness and the light, and the light fighting against the darkness. And sadly, I think many believers think in those ways and still say, well, but ultimately, eventually, the light will prevail. Well, listen, 
When there is darkness, that is the purpose of our God. He is the one, remember, in creation who created light. Now, how did he do that, I ask you? He did so by saying, let there be light, and there was light. There was no combat. There was no, not suddenly light and dark waged a war for thousands of years till light finally emerged the victor. That's not how it happened. When God says, let there be light, the scriptures so wonderfully, poignantly, and clearly say, and there was light. Just like that. It, and he separated from the, the light from the darkness. And he called the light day and he called the darkness night. And in the purposes of God, the light had its design and the dark had its design. Night and day had their purposes all by the working of God. And we've got to understand in the mysteries, we're going to ask these questions. Well, I don't understand why God would have created the devil which we go back, and we've said this so many times, but for those who may be watching a video or something for the first time, the scriptures remind us that his ways are unsearchable. His judgments are inscrutable, that is, beyond tracing out. And so people say, but when he created him, did he not know that he would fall and rebel? Well, of course, as he also knew when he created Adam and put him in the garden that he and Eve would also fall. There is nothing that has ever taken God by surprise. There's nothing that suddenly happened and he looked back from wherever, wherever he was and thought, oh no, how do I fix this? That's how we work. That is not how God works. Now again, you and I would say this, but by purposing and permitting the fall, that ultimately means that billions of people will suffer an eternity in the lake of fire because of their unbelief apart from God. Did he not foresee that? Well, of course he did. Well, then I don't understand why he would create a world like that. I don't get it. And it's okay if you stop at saying, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But we live in a world that takes it one step further. It doesn't seem right to me. Therefore, it's wrong. We've got to understand this. Even if something seems right to us, it could be wrong. I mean, we live in a world like that. I mean, just watch a little bit of news once in a while, you know, and, and engage in a little bit of political banter, and you will see different things seem right to different people. Very strongly, they seem right, and very strongly, they seem wrong. Have you ever been there? Yeah, we, we face that all the time, but listen. With one another, there may be occasion where the other person is wrong and you're right. And it may be even more frequently. I don't know. I hope so. But with regard to where our opinion 
our view and our decision differs from God's, He's always in the right. And we're always in the wrong. And we're often the wrong because we are judging on the basis of what seems best for man. And or what seems best for me in the short term. But remember, all creation exists from Him, for Him, through Him and to Him. It's all His. It's all about Him. At some point, we began to, to recognize uh, we're not so big. When we think of the size of, of the cosmos, the universe, and then when they talk about the size of various stars and various planets, planet Earth ends up becoming what? So minuscule compared to like a speck of dust in the visible universe. And it gets worse because I'm but a molecule of dust on a speck of dust in the scope of the whole universe. So that we ought to cry out like the psalmist in Psalm 8, what is man that you would be mindful of him? We ought be astounded of the mercy and, and kindness of God that he would condescend to even take on the form of man to bear our sin in his suffering on the cross that we might be redeemed, that we might be brought to share in his glory. And the full scope of that sentence, I don't grasp it. I can only say it because the scriptures do. But when we think of this, his word never fails, always accomplishes its purpose. It's just what he has purposed is not always what we think. Now, first of all, again, when he, say, we, he says, so shall my word be that sent forth. It's hard for me not to see uh, the complexity that sometimes arises in prophetic passages. Because we've got the word and the word. Now, I know it sounded weird when I said that, but you follow with me if you've ever read the Gospel of John, correct? Because the Gospel of John, verse 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. To which the world hears that, and they say, Whoa, that makes no sense. So, how is the Word both with God, and how is the Word God? How can He be God and be with God? This is confusing, makes no sense, foolishness, throw it out! But the Scriptures tell us the Gospel, the Word of Truth, is foolishness to those who are perishing. We're told that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But we've come to understand, we, un we understand this. In the complexity of, of the presentation of a God beyond our comprehension, the scriptures tell us there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, such that Jesus can say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. 
such that Jesus can say, I and the Father are one. So in that, that unique singularity of God, while at the same time, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, prays to His Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. And then in a mystery that this side of glory we will never comprehend, will cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so we have the distinctiveness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the singularity, the, mom, the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not different ones at different times, but the Son is eternally the Son, the Father is eternally the Father, the Spirit is eternally the Spirit. One but three, three but one. And the mind says, what? And the world says, nonsense. And we say, amen. We believe. I said, but it's beyond our conception. So much of the workings of God, so much of the plan of God, so much of the grace of God is beyond our conception. So the, the first, we don't start with our conception. We don't start with our thoughts. We just take the word and receive the word, believe the word. Listen, it says further, not only that in John 1, 14 and following, it says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father. The word became flesh. The word that the father sends will never return void, but will always accomplish the purpose for which he had sent it. I love thinking of that in all of its various potential aspects. And surely that is the case with regard to the word incarnate, the Son of God. He absolutely, in every moment of his life, it tells us in John chapter 8, was pleasing to his Father. Towards the end of his, his earthly life, in the, in the transfiguration, the Father would manifest in the gloom of a cloud overhead and pronounce what? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And I think, can you imagine? There, there has not been another who has lived with such perfect righteousness. And he accomplished all these things, which is why it goes on down there in verse 16 to say, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And again, you hear those words and say, what? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. If you don't understand the Trinity, John chapter 1 makes no sense. Indeed, if you don't understand the sovereign, savoring grace of God, much of the gospel of John is shrouded in confusion and mystery. 
but oh, God's powerful word. Now, I want us to never forget this. Listen, God's word always accomplishes its purposes. Now, listen, for many years, there's an individual by the name of George Barna. Some of you may have heard of him. He does polls and studies of Christianity and of the church, basically trying to figure out how many people are attending church, what are the reasons they're attending church, and all kinds of other statistics and information. Strangely of which, there are many churches sprinkled throughout the world and our nation when they're trying to figure out what to do this next year, this next decade, in order to grow the church. They open his books on statistics and what people want and what they desire and what they're not interested in and what, what, what draws them to a church. Instead of opening the book, the Word of God, that tells us what God would have us do. And he has continued through the decades to present that churches are getting smaller and smaller. The attendance in America continues to dwindle. And so, churches need to, and then they fill in the blank, adapt, change. Is that what we need to do? We don't do that. And, and there's a reason why we don't do that, is because God's Word always accomplishes His purposes. You know, again, I'm not a prophet, and I... And I Far from knowing all things, but I, my tendency is to think it's because the preaching of the word has dwindled from an hour to 20, 25 minutes. That's why people are not coming anymore. It's just snippets and sound bites, you know, uh, uh, little words that people might be able to tweet and retweet and turn into bumper stickers and make into endlessly repeating songs. Instead of the Word of God set forth for the people of God to feed the sheep. And with regard to the lost, do we have to think of more influential, more effective ways to get them, to convince them? We've got to try our heart. If we just made the church look like their favorite things to do in the world, then how many more of them would come, they say. But listen, if the church is indistinguishable from the world, then what use is the church among those unbelievers who come, I ask you. Because I remind you of these simple words from Romans chapter 1. That we oft consider. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. The good news that God has revealed. Of the salvation that is found only in Christ Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Do you know why? For it is the power of God unto salvation. I want to ask you this. 
Are there any other powers of God unto salvation? If we, if we set the lighting just right during the worship time and song, will that be more effective? If, if we have the right ebb and flow and crescendo of, of slow to fast to celebratory to majestic to introspective, meditative. If, if we do all that right, will it be more effective? Well, some say yes, don't they? If we have the right instrumentations, if we have the sufficient quality of singers and instrumentation, you know, if it's extremely modern, no, if it's a wonderful orchestra, no, if it is, a, what is it? The answers are not in our methodology. Salvation is entirely bound up in a faithful message. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And listen, it's delivered in only one way. You communicate it. You say it. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Verse 17, I remind you of this. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. His perfection, His glory, His holiness. And then what happens when we consider His holiness? We recognize our unrighteousness, our unholiness, but the righteousness of God in Christ by faith that will be counted to all who believe. The righteousness of God is revealed. But here's the problem. When people preach something, they call the gospel, but the gospel doesn't show up in their gospel presentation. I mean, there's nothing of the righteousness of God. It is, are you sad? Are you miserable? Are you hurting? Do you need help? Do you need healing? Do you need money? Well, pray this prayer with me and Jesus will give it to you. All right. Was the righteousness of God revealed in what I just said? There's no righteousness of God at all because the gospel isn't there. In, in, in a sad way, uh, Christ gets secondary honorable mention in the gospel of men today. Whereas this is, not only in it is the righteousness of God revealed for faith from faith, for as it is written, the righteous will live from will live by faith. But then verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. <laughs> Do people hear of the righteousness of God or the wrath of God and the unrighteousness of men? Are these things proclaimed today? And they wonder why it seems fewer and fewer are in churches. When, when the, what is called a church has become devoid of the gospel and the rich tones of its message, righteousness, wrath, unrighteousness, mercy, grace, forgiveness, judgment, the full scope of it all bound up in the cross and the glory of Christ and His death and resurrection. When that's gone... What is there? 
And so these books also bemoan the remarkable turnover in some of these massive churches. They have people coming and they'll come for a few months or a few years and then they're now they're no longer churched. Church, then unchurched. Church, and, and there's this, this tremendous turnover, and they're trying to figure out how to fix that. Listen, when God, by His grace, fixes a person into union with Christ by the Spirit and faith, they're going to be a part of a body because that's what God has made them to be. They're going to be a part of a flock of which he is the shepherd by his glorious designs. And I just it breaks my heart that we've not understood that. The reason, when God's word goes forth, even when we preach it, it accomplishes its purpose every time. So we, look, for, for the unbeliever that God has purposed to bring to salvation that day, it'll bring them under conviction and, it will, and the Spirit will impart to them life and faith and they will cry out to God in confession of their sin and acknowledgement of Him as their Lord and Savior. For the believer, it will feed us it will convict us that we will continue to put to death certain things and attitudes and actions and desires in our life. And it will cause us more and more to put on those things that are Christ-like. But this is the word that does that because it's a living and active word. But if the word is set aside, then what happens? When, when you get a verse here and there mixed in with the theme... A verse here and there mixed in with a story. What do you do? You know, and there, there are some phenomenal storytellers out there. But stories don't save people. Stories about how sad this person was, how, how lost they were, how broken they were, and how blessed they are now does not save anyone. The gospel saves someone. And actually, is the gospel that is the power of God to salvation really bolstered by us talking about the changes in that one and the changes in that one? Or is the gospel the power of God into salvation? Now, I'm not saying we can never glory in the wonderful transforming grace of God. We do so even when we read the scriptures. We see what Paul was, what he was doing, how he was living, how he hated the name of Christ, how he hated the church, and then when Christ was made manifest to him, complete turn. And we recognize what a power of God. We even note in, in the context of that, was Saul who we later call Paul, was he at a low point in his life? Was he at an impoverished season in his life? Was he at his wit's end and, and had no other place to turn? Is that what happened? Was he seeking God with his whole heart? Was he earnestly desiring after Christ? No, he was in the midst of his wicked blasphemy and murderous rebellion and God met him with grace. Some would say, well, we don't want to hit them with righteousness and wrath till they're ready. 
we need to kind of work them to that point. You know, let's build a bridge of friendship. Let them figure out Christians can be cool too. Let's get this. Really? Does that even matter? Look, whether, look. You, you want to say Christians can be cool too. Christians can wear skinny jeans too or whatever you want to say. But the fact is this. Christians can also be absolute dorks. Christians can be, by the world's standards, full outcasts. You know, God has, in His mercy, at times chosen the weak, the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He has taken from the full strata of society. The whole point isn't, hey, you want to be like us? Because even our goal is not to be like us. Not to be like a cool version of Christianity. We want to be like Christ. We want, by the grace of God, to be like Christ, don't we? You know, I don't, you know, you don't get the sense in reading this, that the scriptures, that Jesus was concerned with being categorized as cool or uncool, in fashion or out, or any such things. His agenda was first and foremost to accomplish all the Father has given him. And much of that accomplishing was, I speak to you. The words that my Father has given me, I declare to you. I do not speak on my own authority, but what he has given, I declare to you. If, if churches are truly the church of Christ, and he is the head of the church, we got to do what he did. And God has given given us a word and his word always fulfills its purposes why will we go somewhere else why will we do something else why would we minimize what is a remarkable moment among us each week of God accomplishing his work among us and within us why would we do something else I don't get it we're told even further in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 and following. Christ did not send me, Paul says, to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The King James there says, not with words uh, wisdom of words. The New American Standard says, not with cleverness of speech. Brothers and sisters, don't we live in that world? And there's such an agenda of wisdoms of word, cleverness of speech. How can we weave the, the vernacular into the gospel? Even some would go so far as to say, look, you're going to turn people off if you say words like righteousness and unrighteousness. You're going to turn people off. They're not going to be interested anymore. Well, it's valuable when you say a word and you know they don't understand it. To define it for them. But listen, we live in a world that's mind is not led by the scriptures. It's not informed by the word, but if we turn away from the truths of the word because people won't understand them, that shouldn't be an issue. Because these things are spiritually discerned, 
we come from the get-go understanding this. Apart from the Spirit of God, no one's going to understand what I say. Well, if I tweak it here, adjust it there, dumb it down a bit here, soften it there. Really? No. Not going to be what we do. Because why? Lest the cross be emptied of its power. He did not want that people's responses would be to his wonderful way of communicating. He wanted it to remain clear that people's response was to the truth of the message enabled by the Spirit of God giving them understanding. He wanted it to be that when they came, it was they're pointing to the gospel, not to the messenger. And I get scared because we do live in a world where maybe you'll ask somebody, tell me about your salvation. And they talk a lot about the meeting, the man who was speaking about at that meeting. Uh, for a season, it, it even seemed like a badge of honor to some if they could say, I was saved under this man's ministry. I was saved at a Billy Graham crusade. I was, and so, so does that make you somehow better than the individual that God saved in a small local church of which nobody in the world knows that pastor's name? It, it, it doesn't because, again, we've talked about this before. How many people did Billy Graham save? None. How many people did Paul save? None. Salvation is a work of God through the gospel by the power of the cross and the working of the Spirit. This is what we know. This is what we believe. But see, we live in a world in which people say, I don't understand because if God's word that we preach is always successful, it always accomplishes its purpose, uh, how come I preached and nobody believed? Well, there were times we see in the life of Christ and in the life of the Apostle Paul recorded for us where when they spoke on certain occasions, the response of the crowd was less than favorable. You know, uh, sometimes in the life of Christ, it said they sought to lay hold of him in order to put him to death. And, and that we know the same things in the life of the Apostle Paul. And so we say, but how can it be successful if no one believed? Well, the scriptures are not shocked by this reality. Uh, uh, scripture even says this in the Gospel of John chapter 12. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And often we ask ourselves that as we don't see the responses that we would like to see. Who has believed? I'm preaching and preaching. Who has believed? But the second half of this phrase, so powerfully clear. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. 
which is an important phrase. The idea in this being brought over from the Hebrew, quoted from Isaiah, to whom the arm of the Lord been revealed, it means who has God shown his power in? Because that's when salvation is accomplished, when God shows his power. But listen, God has been pleased not to show his power to salvation apart from the hearing of the word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. But when it is heard as we preach it, some hear it with the deafness of the flesh, with the blindness and impotence of man, but then to others, indeed, to us who God has assembled here today. He made known his power to us. He revealed his arm. He saved us. That's why it goes on to say this. Uh, 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 in in Jesus' day, and as I love this because remember, this is in Jesus' day as Jesus has spoken to them. I honestly don't think I will ever communicate as accurately and faithfully and perfectly as Jesus did. I would hope to. But Jesus always did everything right, yes? Yet as he did it right here, the response of everyone, for the most part, was wrong. So it says this, therefore, verse 39, they could not believe. Not merely they did not believe, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. Listen, Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 uh, uh, says these words as he speaks to the Father. He says this in Matthew eleven twenty five: I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. So who has hidden it from some? God. Then it goes on to say what? And revealed them to little children. Who is the one who has hidden it from some and revealed it to others? God. Now we think, I, in my human tendency, I would think, well, I will thank God for revealing it to everyone. But Jesus thanks God for having hidden it from some and revealing it to others. And then goes on to explain that as this. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, some of you say, but that's not how I would have done it. You know, I would have done it in a way that more would be saved and less would be lost. But in the plan of God, and it's no surprise, what does Jesus say? Narrow is the way and few are those who will find it that leads to life. So the fact that ultimately those who are truly saved will be a minority of mankind throughout history is by God's intentional design. And if, if your heart says, why? I say, that is known to him because he is all wise. But I do know this, it will serve to, for, to us for eternity to make known the riches of His grace 
He has his perfect design and purpose. And again, it goes on in Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and whomever the Son chooses to reveal him. There has to be a revealing, a making known by power. There is in every salvation a divine act that initiates and accomplishes salvation. It's glorious. That's why we say in Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us. Not because of works that we have done, but by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saved us. Which means who saved us? So who saved themselves? Nobody. But how many of us roam around and how many of us maybe at one time in our youth thought, yeah, about 50-50. You know, I did this, he did that, and we didn't realize that uh, what you did was the outworking of his grace. You breathe because he's given you life and lungs and breath. You see because he's given you sight. You hear because he's given you ears. You believe because he's given you faith. This is how we come to understand the clarity of scriptures, which is why, again, it says this, and we looked at it briefly this morning in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says this, uh, look, we, we don't lose heart. Do you not think at times the ministry could be discouraging? It could be. You know, at times, do you not, as you try with your, your, your own loved ones, sometimes the members of your own family, you try to get them to hear and understand and accept and believe, and yet it continues to fall on deaf ears, rejected, sometimes angrily. And you think, ah. Oh. And maybe at times you're tempted to lose heart. But we don't need to lose heart. You know why? Because God will accomplish his work. And so each time we share it again. Why do we share it again? Because we know the gospel is God uh, is the power unto salvation. We don't have to figure out a better way to say it. We don't have to figure out a more persuasive technique. <laughs> we just need to keep sharing it in love. Keep making it known. Because as he says, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with the word of God. I don't know why anyone would tamper with what works. Listen, once you tamper with it, it's not going to work the same. Listen, uh, even if our gospel is veiled, he says here, even if some don't get it, it's like they have a blindfold on, they can't see it. It's like they have an earplugs in, they can't grasp it. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. For we proclaim not ourselves, but Christ and ourselves as servants for His sake. For listen, look, I love what it says in verse 6. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, what? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So listen, what is the enemy doing? 
By God's permissive design, he has blinded the minds of unbelievers. As if he's put their hands over them. He's keeping them in darkness. And we were once among them. But even as God said, let there be light. And there was light. For us also, when we were in darkness, spiritually, he said, let there be light, and there was light. The glory of the gospel of Christ shone upon us. While we were dead, it's as if he said, let there be life, and the Spirit came and brought life to us. <laughs> His word always accomplishing its purpose. It, we think that it's, it's not accomplishing its purpose. Look at them, and look at them, and look at them, they're not saved. Well... It's, it doesn't save those who are perishing, but it saves those to whom God has given life. Again, we're reminded uh, in so many words, you have been saved, Ephesians 2, 8 and following, by grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of results, so that no one may boast. Now, people will sometimes get, dig into this passage and say, well, it's not the faith that's the gift of God, it's, it's the grace that's the gift of God, or it's the salvation that's the gift of God. And what they're not missing is that this phrase is not designed to be broken up into separate parts. By grace, you're saved through faith. <laughs> you, 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 you don't really get one without the other. Grace saves through faith. And so you need to understand this. Grace, salvation, and faith are all the gift of God so that no one can boast. But then Philippians makes it even clearer for those who are struggling. It says this in chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for his sake. In the, in the phrasing here of granted, there are two words in this passage that are in the infinitive present active. Two words that are the things that have been granted. The first is to have faith in Jesus Christ or to believe in him. And the second one is to suffer for his name. Now I fear for the person who says, I'll take part one. Because these things are not to be parsed. They are not separated. Oh, I have so much more that I wanted to say. God being rich in mercy, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive. What were we? Mostly dead? No, no, dead. That's why there is a song that speaks of the love of God, that is a beautiful song in some senses. It says, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But that's not what the scriptures really put forward, is it? It's not someone who's sinking and God's waiting there, waiting there, and then I can't do anything until you cry out. Come on, come on, cry out. Okay, he cried out. Now I can do something. That's not the way it is, praise God. We're not sinking. 
We have sunk and we are dead in our sin. We're not even there so that some sort of lifeboat or life preserver could be thrown to us. We are at the bottom of the sea. And God in His mercy, while we're dead, He reaches down into the depths of the sea. He lays hold of us and He brings us out to Himself and gives us life. It is not a small thing. And the Scriptures give so many powerful pictures of that which uh, uh, we've looked at in the past. Again, we were captive, enslaved prisoners. But when the sun sets us free, we're free indeed. They asked that, um, that man that Jesus healed from blindness. They're challenging him in all kinds of different things. And what does he say? One thing I know. I was blind, but now I see. A lot of us are hesitant to share the gospel with those we don't know because maybe they're going to challenge us with scientific questions about the origin of the universe, and maybe they're going to challenge us with philosophical questions about, uh, about this and that. And listen, you don't worry about the things that you don't know. Tell them. I am not a molecular biologist, but this I do know. And tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know. Now, uh, that's not that there can't be an opportunity to, to, to continue to grow because it is wonderful to see how actually the heavens and nature declare the handiwork of God. And science rightly understood bears the handiwork, indeed the signature of our sovereign saving God. So it's fun to see those things. But we're, science saved no one. Philosophy saved no one. Effective answers to challenges saved no one. Everyone who has ever been saved has been saved through the gospel by the powerful working and grace of God. And this is going to affect all of creation as it indicates at the end of this psalm, an absolute celebration to the full and finished work of God. Thanks be to God, it says in 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 14, who in Christ Jesus always leads us in a triumphant procession. Always. Every time. Because why? The message we declare is an aroma of Christ to God. Now, in the world, it's an aroma of death to death to those who are perishing, accomplishing God's purposes. Life to life to those who are being saved. It's accomplishing different things, but it is an aroma of Christ to God. And that is our goal every time. Our goal is to be an aroma of Christ to God, to declare the gospel in such faithfulness and clarity that it is pleasing to God. And then we have the confidence he's going to accomplish exactly what he accomplishes every time with absolute victory. So, we were lost, and he came and found us. Remember, the scripture speaks of Jesus, and it says, he came to seek and save the lost. Absolutely victorious. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out and gives them eternal life. He will not lose a single of all the Father has given him, but raise them on the last day. What absolute purposefulness What absolute perfection. 
what absolute and always victory and success God accomplishes. And so we strive to, to lay hold of his truth, to declare his truth, to line up our lives, to line up our congregations with his truth. And we leave what season it is, whether it is a season of breaking up fallow ground, whether it is a season of planting, whether it is a season of harvest, we leave the season to the Lord of the harvests. And we sow the seed. We pour the water. Because neither him who sows or who waters is anything but God causes the growth. We hold, Paul says at the end of one of those sessions, we hold this treasure in earthen vessels, clay jars. We're not significant. We're not the valuable thing. It's Christ and the gospel that's been poured into us that is the value. And we, though in a sense worthless, will continue to pour out that which alone has eternal worth. Let's pray. Lord, you are so great. And I do pray that to us, your people, these remarkable, resounding, revealed truths that we will never grow weary of hearing them. That, Lord, they would continue to ground us and, and, and focus us on those things that are to be our priority. That we would not grow weary in doing good. That we would preach the gospel. That we would trust that every day, every moment, you are saving your people. And not one of your designated sheep will be lost, but you will seek them, you will find them, you will deliver them. And we thank you, O oh God, for having done so for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.